And if you didn't bring a Bible, you have one, and you have this, I think it's on page 50? Someone remind me. Page 46, and then go to Mark chapter 8, verse 27. So page 50, bottom page 50. Chapter 8, verse 27. So big eight, and look for the little 27. Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. And if you need a pen, can you raise your hand? A few people. Okay. Um, Nicole's gonna help you out. No, it's not necessary. Only if you wanna write notes. Alrighty, so good to see everyone. Sorry for the late start, had to set up a few things. Um, welcome back to the gym, if you've been here before. If you haven't, um, it's basically the same. The one thing to take note of is that all the yelling and screaming and having fun back there is our international students ministry, which is basically our ministry to those who go to other colleges or other, yeah, other colleges, and we try to reach out to them with the gospel. So if they make noise, just kind of keep going. They're fine. They're not going to die or anything. Um, it might be a little bit distracting, but I think we'll get used to it. Does someone have a question over there? Okay, we're good. The second announcement is that who has been to Youth Bible Camp? Who has ever heard of that before? Okay, some of us, great. So we're going to start up Youth Bible Camp again on October 8th. So that's in a few weeks. Youth Bible Camp, if you haven't been before, is basically a time to read the Bible together. All right, so we're going to meet for about an hour before youth group on Fridays. So every Friday before youth group will be basically just a bunch of kids and some adults reading the Bible together. During COVID, we read... A lot of books. I think we read Mark and Ephesians and Galatians. And we read it out loud together. And then we break up into groups and just talk about it. Um, there's these questions we use called the seven arrow questions, which is like, what does this passage say? What did this passage mean back then? What kind of questions do you have about this passage? And it's really fun. You get to talk about the Bible with other kids, other youth group um, students. So that'll be every Friday before youth group at 6.30. And I encourage you to come out. Um, reading the Bible together, I think, is really ideal. You get to ask questions, you get to learn from other people, and it's really enjoyable for me. So I hope you go, hope to see you guys there. All right, and next week for youth group, um, my, my cousin, Pastor David, uh, will be coming and preaching for us. Right. Everyone know Pastor David? Yeah? Okay, cool. He's the cool one, remember? He's why I, um, I'm trusted. All right. So everyone's at Mark chapter 8. Let's read from verse 27 together, and then I'll pray. Mark chapter 8. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he said to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, 
but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him and began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Please pray with me. Father, we have such need. Such need to, be, to see you, Lord. Such need, Lord, to have our eyes cleared of all the lies we tell ourselves, all the lies that the world tells to ourselves. And we might see how much, Lord, you are worth. I thank you that, Father, you call us to discipleship in Christ. And I pray, Lord, you show us that it's worth it. That above all else, Christ is worth it. I thank you for every student here, for every staff here. I pray that, Lord, you'd bless us and help us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I don't do this often, but before I start preaching, I want to give a warning. This sermon hits hard and hits fast. And the reason why it does that is because Jesus' words hit hard and hit fast. They're like a knife and they cut. The job of the preacher is to make sure that the message of the king, coming from Christ himself, is communicated as he intends and to never dull the sharp edge of the word of God. We, including me, sit underneath the authority of Jesus. And so we should listen well. Don't hear this as a message coming from Keith, but if I properly preach this sermon, preach this text, then it's really coming from Jesus. So prepare yourself. The word of God cuts deep and cuts fast, but I trust, and you need to trust, that after God's loving hands takes the knife and plunges it into our hearts, he also brings the comfort of his word to make us whole again. He also brings the comfort of his word to make us whole again. But first, we need to receive that knife. So that's your warning. Last week, I asked, who do you say that Jesus is? And building on that, today, I want to ask, what do you say a Christian is? Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. To put it another way, the old me is dead. Crucified when Christ was crucified. So I'm dead. I no longer live. Not for myself. I don't live for myself. I don't live for what I want. But I live instead for and by Jesus Christ. My life's not mine. 
It's his. My ambitions are not mine, but his. My desires are not mine, but his. Now I live by faith in Jesus, the Son of God who loved me and even died on a cross for me. That's what Paul says a Christian is. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that's Paul, right? Like, he's like the missionary guy. He's like the super Christian, apostle, pastor. Of course, Paul is going to say that kind of stuff, right? That's, for me, though, that, that, that's, that's, that's way too extreme. I, I, I'm not that guy. I'm not Paul, right? And I get it. If, you're, if that's what you're thinking, I get it. I used to think the same thing, too. But now listen to what Jesus says in verse 34 of Mark 8. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, if you want to be my follower, if you want to be a Christian, I command you, deny your very self and all your sinfulness, take up your cross and be willing to be crucified and follow me to suffering, rejection, and death. So it's not just Paul who has all this, this conversation about suffering and dying and being crucified as part of a Christian. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Last week we learned that in order to understand Jesus, we must understand him as the suffering Savior. And this week, we'll learn that if we are to follow Jesus, that means if you are to be a Christian, we must follow him in his suffering. So our key idea today is a Christian is a disciple of Christ. One who denies himself and follows Jesus Christ in everything, even in his death. And I have three sections. First is the requirements for discipleship. Second is the reasons for discipleship. And the third is the reward for discipleship. Now first let me define disciple and discipleship. Like who's heard those words before? Okay, so like three of you. Cool, thanks for staying awake. Um, So you all know, right, discipleship or disciple basically means like a learner or a pupil or a student. Um, So like a piano teacher, piano teacher, his students are also his disciples because he's teaching them how to play piano. In a Christian context, a disciple means someone who is a learner and a follower of Jesus, obviously, right? So in other words, a disciple of Jesus is the same exact thing as a Christian. Discipleship, then, is the practice and the art of being a Christian, being a disciple. It involves things like worshiping God and learning the Bible, loving the church, uh, proclaiming the gospel. Really, all of Christian life is underneath this big umbrella of discipleship. But before we look at what a disciple does, all those things in church, we first must ask, what does it mean to even be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a lover of God? In other words, the question I want to answer for you is, what do you say a Christian is? What do you say a Christian is? Jesus doesn't leave it up to us to discover on our own. Instead, he gives three requirements of discipleship. Number one, deny yourself. Number two, take up your cross. And number three, follow Christ. Right, look at verse 34. It says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. But what does that mean? Right. Now, let me explain, first of all, what it doesn't mean. Number one, it does not mean denying yourself something. Right? Like, okay, don't eat that extra piece of candy. Don't eat some more ice cream. Don't watch that extra episode of anime. All right? that, that's, self-control is good, but that's not what Jesus is talking about in this passage. Secondly, it does not mean denying yourself desires for good things that God has given, like food and rest and friends, right? For spiritual reasons even. 
So fasting, aka not eating for a time, uh, praying, giving to the church, those are all good things, good disciplines, but that's also not what Jesus is talking about when he says, deny yourself. What does he mean? In this verse, it means, as one commentator wrote, the denial of the self itself. To deny yourself means the denial of the self itself. Practically, that means that Keith no longer lives for Keith. What Keith wants, what Keith desires, what Keith loves is not the primary question. The primary question is, what does Jesus want? What does Jesus desire? What does Jesus love? Because I'm not in charge anymore. I'm not the master. The Lord, the master Jesus Christ, is instead. To deny yourself means the primary question in deciding who I am and what I do is not, well, do I like it? Or do I want to? The primary question is, does God want me to do it? Does God delight in this? Fundamentally, it means you say no to yourself in order to say yes to God. You become his disciple, and therefore he's become your master. Your master. Now, to love Jesus as master is exactly the opposite of what our sinful self tells us, right? You don't teach anyone to live for themselves. You don't have to teach anyone to be selfish. That's just how we're born, right? No one teaches your little sibling how to cry and scream and pout because they didn't get their way. We, just, we all do that just naturally. This is how we're built. And unless God changes us from the inside, that's actually how we would continue to grow. We just get bigger and usually more selfish. To live for Jesus as master is actually also the exact opposite of what the world says we should do. The world is always asking you, oh, what do you think of this? Can you give your rating? Will you upvote this restaurant or this social media post? Don't forget to comment, like, and subscribe, right? It's pandering to you. The world wants you to do what you want, when you want it, because you want to. But a Christian doesn't live like that. A Christian says, no, King Jesus is in charge, not me. A Christian says, you, my God, are my master. A Christian says, Father, may it be not what I want, but what you want. A Christian says, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. This is the humble position, the humble disposition of someone with a heart that has denied himself in order to live for Jesus. It's the Christian disposition of someone who has said to his sinful self, no, no more, because I live for Jesus. Do you want to be a Christian? Do you want to be a disciple? Then your life must stop being about you. It must start being about Christ. Now that sounds kind of demanding, right? But Jesus doesn't back down. He actually turns the heat up. The second requirement for discipleship is take up your cross. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Now we all know what a cross is, right? It's like that Christian symbol. It's like that kind of like plus sign. We have it in the front of our, our sanctuary for goodness sake. Right? The cross is a beloved symbol of Christianity. But because it's so familiar, we can actually misunderstand it. Do you know what the cross was for? It's for torture and execution. It's scandalous. Whipping someone until their whole, black, their whole back is a bloody mess is beyond words. Nailing someone's hands, arms, and feet with railroad spikes into a piece of wood is beyond inhumane. Letting that victim hang on a cross in the sun and the heat, in the cold and the rain until they died is barbaric. The cross is a torture device. 
It's in the same family of things as being eaten alive by lions, as being burned alive at the stake, as being killed by an electric chair. Thousands of people have been crucified on crosses. And it's horrific. But Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you got to deny yourself and take up that cross. If you're not shocked, you're not really listening. The Roman Christians in the first century who first received the book of Mark would know exactly what this meant. Remember, imagine you're like that middle schooler who's just seen your friend and his family crucified by Nero. And then you hear this verse. You hear this verse. And you say, what? Jesus wants me to take up my cross? What? What is going on? This command is not metaphorical. It's not theoretical. You've seen your loved ones on the cross. You've seen their blood. You've heard their cries. You've seen their suffering. And you've seen them die. And so if you're like me, you'd ask, Jesus, why would you say such a thing? Why, why would you ever say that? But scripture plainly says, doesn't it? It says, if, you, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Those aren't my words. Those aren't Pastor Eric's words. They're not your parents' words. They're Jesus' words. If he's the king, and he is, this is his kingly command. We don't have the permission or the authority to change his words or to edit what he says because it's hard for us to hear. He's the sovereign Lord, and he has really good reasons for such a high demand. So what does it cost to be a Christian? Simply, everything. Everything. It's not just your Sundays and your Fridays. It's not just your Bible reading and your prayer times. It's not just relationships. It's not just your hopes and dreams. It's not just your ambition and your future. It's not just your heart and your affections or your thoughts and your plans. It's everything. Even your most precious possession, your life. Jesus demands that too. Remember, the most important commandment in the Bible, according to Christ, is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. In other words, everything. And if we say that we will love with everything because Christ commands us, if we say we will live for Jesus, doesn't that also mean that you'd be willing to die for him? Christ demands it all. Absolute allegiance, limitless loyalty, supreme sacrifice. And he deserves it all too. So do you want to be a Christian? Jesus says to you, come and die. And then follow me. It's the third requirement for discipleship, to follow Christ. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So if we're to follow Jesus, we should probably ask, well, where is he going, right? Where is he going? In verse 31, he told, he told, us, he told us, he says, to suffering, rejection, and death. The whole point of being someone's disciple is so that you'd be like them, right? Well, think about it. Christians worship a man that was rejected and killed by crucifixion. So why as Christians should we expect anything less than that? Why would we expect to be loved by the world? Why would we expect to have comfort and ease in this life? Why would we expect to be free from trial and tribulation? Truly, we should expect the most amount of pain in this life. And anything short of that is God's great mercy to us. The two previous requirements, to deny yourself and take up your cross are done at the very start of the Christian journey. But to follow Jesus is a continual command to keep on walking with him. 
That means to follow Jesus means a loving relationship with him as a tutor to a student, as a mentor to a pupil, as a master to a disciple. He's the ultimate example, the captain of our salvation, the leader of our voyage to heaven. So that means that growing as a Christian is not just about reading the Bible, not primarily about reading the Bible or sharing the gospel or reading good Christian books, although of course those are good things, you should do all those things. But primarily living and growing as a Christian is being conformed, shaped to be like Christ. When I was a kid, there was this, this phase for some reason with all my friends. They all wanted to have their birthday parties at this pottery center. Um, I like pottery, I'm not opposed to pottery, but it's just like weird, right? So, you know, the pottery center was to make like a birdhouse or a cup or a box, right? Um, I actually have some of these things at my parents' house and I'm shocked when I look at them, I'm like, wow, I actually made that, that's crazy. I have like no artistic ability, so go figure. But one time I was there, I looked over at another table and I saw this master sculptor making a life-size Pegasus. You know what Pegasus is? It's like a, it's a mystical horse with wings, right? So it's, she's making this thing, and it's a huge. She's covered in clay, her hair is up in a bun, her apron's all stained, and she has her whole focus on breathing life into this clay creation thing. She shaped its muscles, its nostrils, its wings, with the utmost care and attention. Honestly, it was amazing, and I kind of wonder where it went, but I have no idea. Even more so, God is in the business of shaping sinners like us into the image of his son. He's a master sculptor. He's taking who we are, flawed and broken people, and yet conforming us, shaping us, molding us with love and affection to look like Jesus. That's the goal of the Christian life. And it's a miracle. By the power of God, we grow to be like our master. We follow him. So, do you want to be a Christian? Then deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Jesus' call to discipleship is steep. Musical instructors demand that their students practice. Sports coaches demand that their players go to practice and commit to the games. School teachers give lots of homework assignments and expect you to be in class. But Jesus, he demands it all. Your entire life. He says, die to yourself in your desires, be willing to die for me, even on a cross, and then follow me in everything, every part of your life. Now I can hear you asking, why? Why would anyone do something like that? That's crazy. How could anyone do this? And that's why Jesus gives three really good reasons to be his disciple. The reasons for discipleship. First, for gain, for gain. Verse 35 says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now let's say theoretically, a crazy lion bursts through those doors, a crazy man-eating hungry lion bursts through those doors. What would you do? You'd run, right? Yeah, you'd run like crazy because I don't want to die. I don't want to die, right? That's only logical. And yet Jesus says this. He says, if you want to save your life, you lose it. But if you lose your life for me and my gospel, you'll save it. Like, what? what? Like, that's like really counterintuitive, right? Okay, so let's, let's break it down. There are two options that Christ is putting before us. Two options that Christ is putting before us. Option number one, continue to be the master of your own life. 
You can reject Christ's call to discipleship and live for yourself. For all your pleasures, for all your interests, you can enjoy what you want to enjoy. You can relish your sin. You can try to save and savor every part of your earthly life. Travel, dine, explore, build, relish, flourish. You can live the life you want to live because you're the master. The result, Jesus says that you will lose the life you love so much. It will slip through your fingers like water. You will be like the insane man who tries to satisfy his thirst by drinking sewage. All your efforts to live the good life will come to ruin. And at the end of, the life, end of your life, you will die in your sins and you'll suffer for an eternity in hell as punishment for what you have done against God. That's option number one. Option number two. Die to yourself and live to Christ as your master. You can bow to Christ's call to discipleship. And you can live no longer for yourself, but for him. You will reject your sinful desires and live for Jesus. You'll love the things he loves and love the people that he loves. Life is no longer about you or about what you want, but about him and what he wants because he is your glorious savior and master. You lose yourself, even being willing to die for him, because you have found him, Christ, who is infinitely better even than life itself. The result? Jesus says that in losing your life for him, you'll save it. You'll be a blessed woman. You'll be a blessed man. Strong, confident, full at the end of your life. And you'll pass from this world into the very presence of the Lord who loved you and gave himself up for you. And forever you'll live with him in a world full of perfect love and delight because he is there. Life eternal will be your story for forever. That's option number two. So it's two choices. Jesus says, try to save your life, live for yourself, you'll lose it. Lose your life for me, you'll save it. That's the first reason reason to become a disciple of Christ. There's no other way to be saved. Follow him. Second, second reason we should live, we should be a disciple of Christ, to save our souls. Verse 36 says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? So I have a new idea for a game show. Who likes watching game shows? Like, you know, Jeopardy and like price, minute to win it and price. Okay, cool, cool. So I have a new idea. Ready? It would ask one question. Here's the question. Would you rather have $100 million, the house of your dreams, a wonderful family, the best vacations, all the anime and manga, video games, beautiful clothes, the best food from all over the world, servants to do all your chores and live a life of ease for forever. Sorry, live a life of ease until you die. Or would you rather have your life? You can choose all this stuff right now and you'll get killed right now. Or you can walk away and go free. Because right, that's like the worst game show idea ever. First of all, because I'm going to kill people. Like that's not a good thing, right? But secondly, also because no one would ever choose the stuff. Obviously, why would you want that? <laughs> it's a terrible choice. No one in the right mind would ever choose to be killed just to get some things. But come back to reality now. What would you rather have? A lifetime of chasing pleasures that will never last and then an eternity of suffering. Or a lifetime of suffering for and with Jesus and then an eternity of perfect happiness with him. Is it ever really a choice? It's a no-brainer, right? 
That's the second reason Jesus gives for following him. If you follow him, you'll save your eternal soul. And nothing is more valuable than that to you. There's no possession greater in your hands than your soul. So save your soul and follow him. Third reason, to not be ashamed. 38, verse 38 says, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In this last reason, Jesus looks forward to his kingdom. When he comes back, he will reign over all as the king. And what will he find? He will find those who are, were ashamed of him, who denied him instead of denying themselves. And those people, he will disown. He will say, you're not my disciples. You're not of me. But he will also find his disciples. And them, he will abundantly reward. In other words, Jesus' third reason for being his disciple is this. There's judgment coming. There's judgment coming. And he's calling for disciples who give up everything for him. These people will inherit his kingdom. These are the ones who will be his forever. So be part of his glorious plan and follow him. Next, I want to turn to the disciples, excuse me. Next, I want to turn to the rewards of discipleship. Chapter 9, verse 1 says this. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. In this verse, the reward for discipleship is the kingdom. Now, I have many things to say about the kingdom, but I can't because I don't have time. But I'll let Pastor David talk about those next week. But I do want to focus on the rewards of being part of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I could talk about this reward, or talk about a lot of rewards. The forgiveness of your sins, uh, eternal salvation, everlasting hope, adoption of the family of God, courage in trials, confidence in suffering, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, the love of the church, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's many, many glorious gifts that we receive because of the gospel. But tonight, I want to focus on one passage. And if you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans, book of Romans. So in the, it's the New Testament, because Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Romans. And if you could, go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 5. Romans 6, chapter 5, chapter 6, verse 5 says this. For if we have become, if we have been united with him, with Christ, in his death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. There are three rewards I want to pull up from this passage. First, we're united with Jesus. Notice how Paul ties together believers in Jesus in this passage. Because we died, excuse me, because Jesus died, we too have died. We've died to our old selves. In fact, we've denied ourselves. That's the discipleship requirement number one. Because Jesus was crucified, we too have been crucified. Our old selves were crucified with him. In other words, we took up our cross. 
and went to the death. That's requirement number two for discipleship. And thirdly, because he was raised in resurrection life, we too will be resurrected physically to be with him forever. That happens at the end of our life, the end of our journeying of following him, which is discipleship requirement number three. So do you see it? Jesus is the one who denied himself. Jesus is the one who took up his cross. And Jesus is the one who followed the will of God all the way to the very end. As his disciples, all we're doing is copying him. But actually, it's better than that. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 5. It says, For if you have been united with him in a death like his, we shall also certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we don't only follow Jesus to become like him and just do what he does. We actually become united with him, or another word, a way of saying it is become one with him in an everlasting relationship of love. He makes the demands of discipleship, but he's also the one who makes it worth it. He's not just a doorway. He's not just the path of Christianity. He's also the reward. Right? He's the reward. The church of God is called the bride of Christ, which means that he is our groom, our husband. It's a picture of the greatest manifestation of love that humanity has ever seen. Christ is the Lord of love. He's full of loving kindness and truth. He is grace come to us. He's salvation's sweetest flower. He's the helper and savior of our weary souls. No one can comfort you like him. No one can save you like him. No one can forgive, restore, transform, help, heal, empower you like him. He is our righteousness from God our sanctification, our redemption, our treasure, our wisdom, our help, our hope of glory. To follow him, you give up everything. But in the end, you don't really lose anything because he is everything. Paul says in Philippians 3, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing, that means like the super value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For him, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, but consider them trash, so that I may gain Christ. In other words, Paul says, okay, here's a scale. Everything in the world that could ever be good on one side compared to Jesus. Jesus wins every single time. That's what he says. To live as Christ's disciple means that you receive him, the greatest gift of all. Secondly, one re- the second reward for discipleship is we're freed from the slavery of sin. Because we've been crucified with Jesus, we've died. And having died, we'll be set free from the slavery of sin. Now, I know that none of you here have been crucified because none of you are dead. That's a good thing. I'm thankful for that. But if you're a Christian, your old self has been crucified. The old self is who you were before becoming a Christian. The old self that loves sin and hated God. But the new self loves Jesus Christ. The old self bowed down to Lord self and Lord sin. The new self bows down to Lord Jesus. That's the difference. If you're a Christian, your old self is dead. And so that means you're free from the guilt and shame because of Jesus. You're not enslaved to sin anymore. You don't have to be addicted to video games. You don't have to be a slave to your lust and sexuality. You don't have to fear others' opinions of you anymore. You don't have to be depressed or anxious or suicidal because Christ has set you free. He set you free. By his strength, you don't have to live for yourself and the old self anymore, but you can live as a brand new person in Jesus. That's amazing. And that's connected to the third blessing of discipleship, which means we're freed unto God. 
We're freed from sin in order to be united with God. That's why, ultimately, dying to ourselves, while hard, is fundamentally good. It's saying no to yourself in order to say yes to God. If you're a Christian, you love God and you hate your sin. You don't live for yourself, but you live for Christ. And this is a tiny taste of what resurrection life will be like. In heaven, there will be no sin. There will be no temptation. There will be no hurt, nor pain, nor suffering. We have that great hope of heaven. And that everlasting hope spurs us on to live for him today. Now, in closing, I want to tell you a story. A story of a man named Thomas Cranmer. Ever heard of him before? No history buffs? Cool. So this account comes from, apparently from a blog post by one of my professors. Uh, his name is Nathan Busnitz, and it's written on a blog called Cripplegate. So Thomas Cranmer, Thomas, was an English Christian in the 1500s. He was a leader in the English Reformation, which is a movement trying to restore the true gospel to the church. He was a writer, a theologian, a pastor. But at the end of his life, he was imprisoned by the Catholic government for almost three years and given the choice, deny the true gospel or be burned alive. He chose to deny. To avoid death, he signed official documents stating that he, Thomas Cranmer, had renounced, that means denied, everything about the Reformation, denying all the truth that he had seen in the scriptures. Effectively, he denied Jesus his Lord. Yet, the Catholic government went back on its word and wanted to have him executed anyways. So, on March 21st, 1556, they marched him out to a nearby church and gave him one last, and gave him the opportunity to give one last speech affirming his denial of biblical Christianity. But to the Catholic shock, from the pulpit, he denied his previous denial, meaning he reversed his denial of Jesus and instead said, I will gladly choose to die for the sake of Jesus Christ, my Lord. True biblical Christianity. And before they literally pulled him out of the pulpit, Cramer swore to put his right hand with which he had signed the official documents into the fire first and boldly face death by flames for the sake of his Lord. Now the Catholics were furious, so they promptly marched him down the street, tied him to a stake, and lit the wood. And true to his word, as one author writes, as the flames drew around him, he placed his right hand into the heart of the fire while saying, that unworthy hand. His dying words were, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I see the heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Cranmer was far from perfect, far from it. But in the end, the Lord's power and by the Lord's grace, he proved true. If you're his disciple, the Lord Jesus will do that for you too. Even in the midst of failure, even under the pain of death, he will carry you through. Don't trust yourself. You're not strong. None of us are. But do trust in him. The cost of discipleship is high. Jesus demands everything because he deserves everything. But God is the one who gives us new hearts to desire him. He's the one that makes us persevere ultimately. He gives us strength to endure. He emboldens us to lay down our lives for his sake. He alone is our hope in life and in death. So Jesus says to you, if you desire to come after me, 
deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It's the only way to be saved. It's the path to eternal life. It's the hope of eternity. This is the call to every single one of you. Whether you're smart or not, rich or not, powerful or not, churched or not, this is a universal invitation to you. If anyone wants to come after Jesus, come. Deny yourself, take your cross, and follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray for you to give us hearts. Hearts that say that the suffering in this present time is not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us who are in Christ Jesus. Lord Christ, you are the king, and we thank you for making the call of discipleship so clear. But now we beg, Lord, that you give us eyes to see it's worth it, to see you, our eternal God. Help us, Lord, to follow you by your strength and power, for surely we have none of ourselves. Help us die, Lord, that we might live to you. It's in your perfect name we pray. Amen. Do you have a question? Joan of, I don't know much about Joan of Arc, actually. Joan of Arc was also killed, yeah, for her faith. I think she was also a Protestant, but I don't really know much about her. <laughs> yeah. So thanks, guys. Um, we're going to break up into small groups now. Um, we're going to be meeting in the gym, so uh, let's have girls on this side and then guys on this side. Guys, you can just, like, drag chairs and put them in a circle um, in your small groups. Let me throw up the small groups on the projector, and then we can break up, okay? Thanks. Huh? Yes, that's exactly right. Wow. You like history, huh? That's awesome. <laughs> sorry, I didn't answer your question. You're raising your hand. What was your question? You forgot. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Next time, write it down and ask me, okay? I love to answer questions. The third one. Now that Jesus is free from the slavery of sin, freed to God. Oh, yes, yes. Okay. If you got a pen and you don't need it anymore, can you give it back to Nicole, please? Thank you.